We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to built environment professionals about the relationship between architects and builders and what it takes to make this fundamental collaboration successful. Our guest in this episode is educator Jody Vayers Coglan from the University of South Australia. Jody coordinates the Design Construct program at UniSA and has been a driving force behind educating students about the construction process. Jody shares why it's important for architecture students to understand construction, the need for construction knowledge when dealing with issues on site, and how design can be improved when thinking about construction from the outset. I'll now hand over to Chris Morley, who is an Imagine Committee member based in South Australia. Let's jump in. It's Chris from Echelon Studio, and with me I've got Jyoti from UniSA Design Construct Program. Hi, Chris. We're going to jump into the topic of relationship between the architect and the builder, and for everyone else's clarity, under the Design Construct Program, we know that that relationship between architect and builder is, is shared through that student role. They kind of wear those two hats. So can you elaborate a little bit more now on how that relationship works for the student's transition between architect and builder and also the premise of the course itself in terms of, again, not wanting to eliminate the role of the builder. Sure, I think it's best to go back to the motivation behind the Design Construct Mm. program when it was established in 1993. The main purpose at that time was to give architecture students practical experience to better understand the building process to inform their design work. Initially focused on taking small projects through design phases mm-hmm. into construction, providing students with an overview of each of those stages cool. and in involvement in, in all of those stages. What kind of efficiencies are there that you probably wouldn't traditionally see um, through a, a model where the architect is the architect and they're contracting or engaging um, with a commercial builder? Yeah, there's one way of looking at it in mm. terms of efficiencies in being over the whole project and being able to be flexible to make design changes and go back and forth from design to construction. But the underlying aim is to give students a better understanding of the construction process in order to inform better designers. And that efficiency might take years to eventuate. It might be a long game that you're improving students' understanding of construction so that they become better designers and better professionals after graduation and into their careers. So I think the the aim is really to provide those students who go through the electives with a better understanding of construction to become better designers. And we do that through small-scale projects where students get to undertake design work and see it through to construction. So there's a back and forth between design and construction thinking and making which gives them an immediate response Mm. or a realisation of their ideas in material outcomes. Yeah, cool. That's that's a really good point that you touched on there is that I've always assumed and I've, I've done the Design Construct program a long time ago. I think as a student, and again, we're talking for them, great to, to hear from them at some point, but 
at what point do you find is there a, a direct transition from when they go from being the architect into that mode of production or, or into the phase of the builder and then once they're in that phase of the builder do they send I was going to say recede that sounds quite negative but do they transfer back to the role of the architect as they're constructing I think the beauty of the program is that that distinction dissolves cool. because you are constantly reviewing your design as you're making it. And this division of thinkers and makers is what we're trying to break down through the program. The lesson, hopefully, for the students is that the construction process is a creative process as much as the design phase is and that you're free in the construction process. If you understand the tools that are at play and the way construction works, mm -hmm. you're free to continue designing and refining the project so that you're constantly wearing both hats, yeah. essentially. And the same way that you should be wearing the builder's hat even in the early design phase, if you've gone through a process of learning how to build something, when you go into the design of a new mm -hmm. project, you've got that knowledge of the, the construction that will come later on. And hopefully you're thinking about that early on. Yeah. And that's really hard to instill in someone if they've never gone through that process. So what we're trying to do is give students a taste of that process mm -hmm. so they become more equipped designers. Yeah. So if we reflect a little bit on a traditional mode or, or traditional relationship, so the architect has their tangible outcomes, so they're producing a documentation set which traditionally gets tendered or, or handed over to the builder for construction. Through the course, are there still those milestones as, as you kind of sketch design and document? Do you get to a point where it's a full documentation set and then you transfer or are you really saying that it is this fluid state and you can construct and come back to documenting? It really is a fluid state. I wouldn't say that we ever have a full <laughs> documentation set. I'd say we have a... Do we ever, actually? <laughs> that's right. And if you pile all the napkins yeah. together and staple them to the back of the planning approval, you've got it. What we do have to provide are drawings sufficient for planning approvals mm -hmm. and for costings, and the students are responsible for that process. So they will go through construction documentation to a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, that'll also involve incorporating engineering mm -hmm. into, the, into the documentation. But we will go into prefabrication in the workshop a long way before everything is resolved yep. and it's up to the students through that prefabrication process to resolve a lot of the details within the scaffold of the construction documents which are necessary for the costing and the approval. Fantastic and so part of the other I think again it's all reflection for for the work that you've already undertaken but a lot of the work that Design Construct do has more or less been relatively remote work and so do you find then that still because it's remote and then I'm going to say with, with limitations or lack of access to maybe even software, we haven't touched on this yet, but the idea that you can actually still just have that notepad and, and kind of sketch through that on-site discussion or determination, you have an ability to prototype or resolve on-site. Is that an occurrence that happens often? Despite our best efforts to be prepared and yeah. prefabricated as much as possible, another lesson is that even when you're well prepared or you think you're well prepared, mm -hmm. once you're on site, there are unforeseen issues mm -hmm. and you have to be flexible and respond to those. So that's another level of detail resolution that's required on site. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said, that's done by sketching through the problem mm -hmm. with a notepad. I'm going to take a small tangent here. In our own practice, Again, being on site and dealing with the traditional relationship with a builder is that 
if uh, an unforeseen issue is raised, you know, there's kind of chain of command, but a, a sequence of events. You know, you get notified of the the issue, you need some time to resolve it and adjust it and come back. So there's a communication that exists there. Do you find that even through Design Construct, some students still naturally sit more wholly in the architectural role or the architect's role and some students just turn into the builder and stay there? Like they like that? Definitely. And, yeah. Yeah, and you, you'll find students that gravitate to the the role of the, the worker bee or, you know, mm. and will and will be happy to pass on the responsibility of the drawings and the measurements to somebody else. And they'll say, I was just told to do it this way. And, right. they, and when there's a mistake, you can point the finger at the person who was reading out the numbers or taking the levels and blame someone else. Mm. And, and that's a really important moment because part of being the builder and the architect is also not having anyone else to blame because you're wholly responsible for the outcome. So in that kind of environment, all of the students have to work together and even if they have a tendency to gravitate to the documentation or the detailing or to the building and digging, mm-hmm. they still have to work together and be responsible for everything. Yeah. So coming back to it, to where we were and it's, it's related enough, when things like that do happen on site and, again, focusing on the, the way Design Construct program is structured, so maybe we should talk about that a little bit. So... Students have an undertaking at the campus and then they'll get to a site and, and construct. How does the program of the project kind of fall out and, and what is the client's understanding of yeah how long things take or, or that particular method? Because I assume students are the architect and builder and therefore those decisions can be resolved a little bit quicker and maybe it's just about informing the client of some adjustments in those times. So can you reflect on, on that? Yeah, I think I should give a typical overview of how a project mm-hmm. would run to give you an idea of those stages. Typically, a project will come in as a design brief, which we will run through a design studio. Mm-hmm. That'll typically be a, a third or fourth year studio, usually some level of experience there for the students that are doing the the project. And we'll run a, a brief through a studio over a semester. Mm-hmm. And that'll generate multiple design ideas, and often those ideas will be shortlisted and presented to the client, Mm -hmm. from which will come a selection of schemes or a scheme which is chosen. Mm -hmm. Often it'll be a selection of schemes, and then there'll be a a following studio or an elective to work that design into something that the client's happy with. Typically, at that conclusion of the design process, when we do have basic documents for for planning approval, that's when we can go into an elective and start prefabrication. So Mm -hmm. following that design stage, we will run a series of electives. Mm -hmm. Projects have, in the past, run over a series of up to five or ten electives where we'll do the prefabrication in the workshop, over usually over two-week intensive periods. And... Mm -hmm. Depending on the scale of the project, we'll either be doing construction on site in two-week intensive periods in parallel to that or at the end of the prefabrication period. Smaller projects will try and prefabricate wholly in the workshop and then take them to site and do them in one or two trips. Another question that does come to mind when you talk about that process, because it has an ability to take quite long with the structure of the university, you know, 
study periods and, and terms, if you will. You've also got, again, this student's role, which is the architect and the builder through Design Construct, but you've got multiple architects, multiple builders, and sometimes I dare say the original architect is not there at the end of the project. Does that no. happen often enough? So how does that baton, I guess, kind of get passed on? Um, and do you feel like you get better results? Because, again, you've had, you know, 30 different architects and, and I don't know how many builders, you know. Occasionally it'll happen, as you said, that the student who might have proposed the original design that was chosen mm-hmm. isn't there by the time the project's built. In a lot of cases, when that's been the case where a client has chosen a particular design as is by the student and run with it, that student will stay involved throughout the process and for them it's an incredible opportunity to see something built that, Mm -hmm. that they've designed. I'd say that maybe happens half the time. The other half, it's really a design by committee. There's There are so many students that will get involved, particularly where there's not a clear winner at the end of a studio and a group of students will get together and merge ideas into one solution. Then in that case, defining who the designer is is impossible <laughs> and it becomes such a collaborative effort. And particularly as you go through the workshop process and students add their own detailing and their own ideas by the end of the project, um, it's, it's rarely a single person's design. And even when it started that way, the evolution of the design through the construction process mm. often changes it a lot anyway. Does anyone ever go rogue? <laughs> do you have a do you have a rogue architect or a or a rogue builder and you just go, you know, like you said, but it was it's designed by committee, you know, sort of. Um, and then you get to a I don't know, a piece of joinery or something that gets fitted. Do you have yeah different different door handle details or finger pull details that were undocumented and, and things like that? I think the process is such a a monitored and guided process of design and construction that those things get picked up pretty Good. quickly and um, and yeah, there's no denying there's a consistent language to the projects. There's a mm. there's materiality and there's a detailing language which is consistent pretty much throughout the thirty odd years of design construction projects and I think students respond to that and and pick up on that and Mm -hmm. as much as you might get ideas along the way that are at odds with what you're designing Mm -hmm. there's a there's an understanding that things need to be worked through and uh, and fit within the the bigger picture. So the monitoring that you you mentioned which is wonderful to know obviously that would reflect on those the actual built outcome in terms of quality of workmanship. Exactly it's not as if there's a workshop and students are handed the key, the basic plans, and we asked them to um, show us what they can do in six months. Every step of the way is is guided very closely by staff. Before you cut any material, you need to have drawings which show what the plan is. You need to resolve your details before you start making them. And often they'll be made two or three times in a, a prototype process where you might not necessarily go with the first idea mm. um, so it is a it's a process of trial and error and there's space for that to happen yeah uh, that's wonderful and i think it's at this point it's really important i think to to note that again we're starting to gauge how the student wears those you know both hats um but it is really commendable that this experience is actually 
you have an ability to offer it to students. I definitely feel that way. And again, it's important to make sure that people realise that these are you know real built outcomes that you're achieving through the, the UniSA Design Construct program. Can you touch on some of the types of clients that you've had, you said over 30 years? So what, what are the range of clients that you would see? Over that time, clients have typically been not-for-profit organisations, so working for community projects, essentially, whether that's accommodation or environmentally focused mm-hmm. projects which might support research or conservation. Typically, we avoid the the private sector. Yeah, fair enough. And then not to get too whittled down in it, obviously there's a contract in place between the university and a client. Can you touch on that just briefly and uh, and then we'll talk about, I think, some, some great projects that you have done? Yeah, like any agreement, we, we have a contract with a client mm-hmm. to provide the built outcome and that involves costs and, and timeframes like any project. Um, the main difference, I'd say, with our projects is that the time frame is the big um, the big difference from a commercial mm-hmm. project where something that might take six months commercially would very well take us two or three years to complete because of the multiple mm-hmm. prefabrication workshops, the drawn-out design phase, which correlates to the university academic calendar. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, the construction on site is limited to short periods where we're able to take students out on site which usually corresponds with the teaching breaks. As a result, projects can go on for many years. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, understanding the client-university engagement process is really good, but also coming with that and, and going again, going back to the, the way the Design Construct program procures those projects, is, that, is there a point there where you have an ability to, even though projects take longer, there is still this cost-effective nature of, of going through this process? And it might not just be cost-effective in a the, in the commercial building sense, but probably more reflecting on the, the prototyping or the workshopping or the types of construction, so prefabrication that you could talk to? Sure. The The overall bottom line for the client is a good outcome mm-hmm. com- compared to commercial costs, I'd say, in most cases because these projects are not undertaken for profit. Mm-hmm. We're largely covering material costs and transportation costs and any administration required for the project. So at the end of the day, financially, it would be a a benefit to the client. Mm. Yeah, good overview of the Design Construct program. We understand the clients and the premise and and why people are undertaking these projects. Can we get into one project specifically and talk about some things that have occurred through that project? And maybe, yeah, you can hit it off with letting us know what project we should uh, discuss. Sure, the most recent large scale project we did was the Fish River Ranger accommodation, Mm -hmm. which provided accommodation for up to eight Aboriginal rangers Mm -hmm. working in the Northern Territory. The project involved a retrofit of fabric-roofed steel structures that were inadequate for the rangers uh, during their time on the station. Essentially, the previous accommodation was a, a platform with a tarpaulin stretched out over the roof and there was no protection from insect screening or radiant mm-hmm. heat that was coming in through the roof. That project went through a master's design studio mm-hmm. where a, a group of students worked together on a proposal. That period of design development with the client went back and forth for about a year to arrive at, at the right outcome. We looked at a number of different options to retrofit the accommodation. 
in the end, we arrived on a design which was very low tech and tried to achieve as much thermal comfort mm -hmm. uh, with passage strategies. So you mentioned through the, this particular project, Fish River, the idea of kind of the mesh screen and clearly, you know, anyone who's lived in, in North Queensland or Northern Australia sees a greater value with the, the fly screen, I would think, than us here in Adelaide at the moment. The innovation that goes into that and, like you said, those thermal comfort factors that came out of the design, can you talk to how they alleviated the idea of maybe a mechanical solution? or For sure. And one of the reasons we were engaged in the first place was because the uh, the ILSC, the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation, who mm -hmm. managed the station, were reluctant to go down the typical road of air-conditioned dongers, mm -hmm. which is what most people provide in those conditions, and it's what most people are after. They're after an air-conditioned box with no windows. And... <laughs> The client was reluctant to do that, partly because of the the long-term energy requirements of this mm -hmm. and the fact that their work is centred around sustainable land management and air-conditioned boxes contradict that. Mm -hmm. So they came to us looking for a passive solution to the problem of accommodation in this extreme climate. And that's where we were able to explore various options and team up with a stainless steel mesh mm -hmm. provider to propose a solution of entirely uh, meshed walls underneath a very large roof to provide insulation from the sun above, but maximise ventilation internally. Yeah, fantastic. And so, again, through the design process and, again, prototyping and, and finding the right supplier of, you know, said mesh, do these elements end up with a level of modular construction like they're prefabricated here at the university or off this site but through the university are they then modular or are repeated through the design or is there flexibility with inside the design to still have you know fully bespoke mesh screen the modularity was up to the students so that the design was only required to be modular insofar as it could be packed into a shipping container and mm. taken to site and, and quickly installed. So we worked with the mesh manufacturer to achieve that, that system. Uh, the other benefit that we had going through the process in-house was that we were able to test materials mm. during the construction phase. We were able to look at different meshes, physically test them, you know, do the key test and, yeah. and see if they dent. And, so we did go through a process of looking at various options as we have the opportunity to do in the workshop when the students are uh, testing out their design ideas. Okay. Self-reflection here, but it'd be great if I had an ability to test every fly screen that um, went into a house before we saw a dog run through it or, or something on site. So yes, great process to be able to facilitate here. So one of the things that I kept reflecting on was that I'm conscious that if you think there's a scenario where you've experienced as an architect working with an external builder, that you could compare to a similar scenario that's unfolded through Design Construct, where Design Construct offered an outcome that was significantly different. So over to you to, to come up with what you think that might be, but I'd be really interested to know if there is that common issue that maybe Design Construct's resolved. I think the biggest benefit to the client is the possibility for variation. Because we are mm. providing the design and the construction in-house, we have the capacity to respond to changes mm -hmm. in the brief and the scope of works. One example 
that's currently been thrust upon us is a change in management of a station, which is right. um, hosts a project that we're currently working on. And the change in management has come with a different vision and the project that we're currently doing has been chopped in half. Well, the client's asked to chop it in half. Yeah. Essentially, you know, half the size of the building and half the scope of the hmm. facility. So that's something that a commercial builder would be kicking and screaming about. You know, the commercial cost and the yeah. variation would be probably unmanageable, whereas we've got the flexibility to respond to that. Mm-hmm. We understand that the client's needs have changed and we're happy to facilitate that. So that's a, an example of where the architect and the builder being in one in this situation provides a different outcome that would otherwise have occurred probably. And the other benefit in this situation is that because it's a remote site and our design and construction strategy has been to prefabricate this building as a series of modules that mm-hmm. can be expanded or reduced, technically cutting the building in half isn't a big problem and we can quite easily do that yep. so without any material changes. That's what I was going to follow up question with. Are you in fabrication? We are. We've prefabricated yep. one of six bays okay. of a radial building and the project is now reduced to three bays. So fortunately, we still have two bays to make and we can mm-hmm. use the bay that we've already created because the design doesn't change as a system. It just reduces in scale. So yeah. we, um, we are able to continue on using the material that we've already started mm-hmm. uh, processing. Oh, it's fantastic. Columns, joists, rafters, yeah. everything is still usable. Mm. Yeah, and fantastic that you are able to respond in... in that way, you know, it's testament, I think, to the abilities and the outcomes that Design Construct can achieve, so that's really wonderful. If we can get to a point, I think, where we we spoke earlier about this, but we both feel very conscious about talking for the student, but what do you feel there are, the benefits to the students are through this process? As you said, it's hard to speak for the students, but both of us having been students of this program, I yeah. think we can rightly um, talk about how it was for us. And for many students, it's the first time they'll ever see anything that they've had an involvement in designing come to life mm. in physical form. And I think certainly that makes you feel good and it's an exciting process to be a part of, but it also equips you with a confidence to understand the relationship between your work as a designer mm-hmm. and how that comes into being as physical stuff in the world. And I think the benefit to students seeing that is is huge mm. and it's confidence building. Yeah. And it gives students pride and also something that they can put in their C V as a as a built project that they've been a part of, which mm. is pretty rare for students coming out of university. It is rare. I'm, I'm sitting here interviewing you and I can see the project that I worked on over your shoulder and I keep looking <laughs> at it going, I remember that. I remember, yeah. Um, putting a bolt through that piece of steel yeah. or, or trying to yeah get the ramp to work around the tree stump, which we found when we got on site. There were a couple of other things. So, yeah, I'm very conscious of how good or how much of a benefit this program is to a student and certainly turning or transitioning from a student into career and professional architect. 
it definitely allows you to have a, a more informed conversation with a builder, I think, from day one. So it is amazing. We have spoken about the benefits to the client, but if we can recap on that, I think that'd be good. And then we'll talk to the benefits of the, the profession and the industry as well to wrap up. Sure. I think the benefit to the client that we might not have touched on so much yet is engagement in the design and the construction mm. process because that's something that might be quite different in a commercial sense. We work quite closely with our clients through the design phase because we want students to get as much exposure to mm -hmm. the clients and the real-world nature of the project that they're in. So the clients are quite involved in that design process as well as the construction process, mm -hmm. often being on the sites with us when we're constructing as well. So in that sense, the clients are typically very involved in the whole process, which is, I hope, a benefit to them, as well as the, the benefit of the, the flexibility for us to respond to to changing needs or mm -hmm. changing conditions on the site, as we mentioned before. Cool. I think we're both conscious of it, but the, the important factor of all of this is the benefit to profession and industry as students kind of leave the walls of the university. How do you think it affects their contribution to profession? I hope that it provides students with a more practical understanding of of architecture when mm -hmm. they go into the profession. Now, reports continue to come out on the profession of architecture and the education of architecture students in Australia, which mm -hmm. highlight a lack of practical knowledge. And I think this is an ongoing concern for, mm -hmm. for education. And the program aims to help bridge that gap by giving students some of that practical knowledge. So hopefully students enter the profession more confident and more capable in understanding the relationship between designing mm -hmm. and building. I guess this is where my own research interest mm -hmm. surfaces and I am very interested to see if there is any longitudinal benefit mm -hmm. to students who have gone through projects like these. In Australia, we've got two universities now that have been doing design-build work for over 25 years and there's a body of graduates out there who have gone through these hands-on learning experiences and we're probably at a time where we can look back and see where we all and ask up. whether this has been beneficial and and how how much these students might have changed trajectories or mm -hmm. become more confident in certain areas that's something that i'm excited to to research yeah. and delve into absolutely and look I, I again having come through this program i'm a little bit biased it's an invaluable experience for anyone who gets a chance to to undertake it while they're here because it is so successful and we know that through the fish river project what's next or what should we look out for you know is there is there something in the pipeline that we can expect to see from design construct soon there's always something in the pipeline one of the, our problems is that we've got too many things in the pipeline and trying to find the time to do them all is right. difficult however we do have a couple of things happening at the moment which are smaller scale projects that are closer to home so I won't say too much. There are a couple of things happening which aren't going to be as remote. And while we do enjoy the remote work and there are wonderful challenges and expertise that, that we've developed mm. to, to deal with remote sites, it would also be great to give students some experience in local projects and mm -hmm. also be able to show the work to friends and family. One of the yeah. downsides of all of these remote projects is that the students will go to the site, they'll do the work, come back and might never even see the building again. You know, or yeah. It might be 10 or 20 years until they go back to that site and see it. 
So some of these projects closer to home might give students the opportunity to, to get back there and mm. you know, show friends and family the kind of thing they've been involved in. Cool. Fantastic. Um, Jody, I'll just say thank you again for your time. We hope everyone enjoys listening to your comments and feedback and we look forward to seeing those projects in the future. So thanks again. Thanks, Chris. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our guest in this episode, educator Jyoti Veers-Coglin from the University of South Australia. We're very grateful for your time and thankful for your contribution to the built environment and architecture education. I'm sure UniSA graduates are all in high demand because of all your amazing work. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Chris Morley, Renata Gabara, Hannah Broughton and Lauren James. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.